I'm honored to welcome to the Truth Rhythm Mothership jazz, R&B, rock, and pop saxophonist, composer, and arranger Tom Scott. Since launching his recording career in the late 1960s, he has released dozens of albums under his own name, contributed to recordings by some of music's biggest stars and some of their best-known hits. He's also served as a founding member of the Blues Brothers Band, as well as composed many celebrated film and television themes and scores. Along the way, he's received 13 Grammy nominations and won three. He supplied some of the finest jazz funk fusion of the 1970s, and among the classics he lent his horn to, on the pop side are Wings' Listen to What the Man Said, Carol King's Jasmine, Blindy's Rapture, Rod Stewart's Do You Think I'm Sexy, Toto's Rosanna, and Whitney Houston's Saving All My Love for You. He also played the Lyricon on Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, and he presently hosts the radio show Hang Time on KKJZ or KJazz and spotlights famous entertainers on Tom Scott's Podcast Express. You are still a busy guy. Tom, thank you for joining the show. I'm exhausted with the intro. <laughs> thank you. It's nice to be here. I appreciate it very much. Ah, it's my uh, honor. Where, where are you today? Uh, I'm at home in, um, in my house in Santa Paula, California. Okay. And uh, you're from L.A. You're a native like me. So, you know... Uh, I felt like those were a dying breed when I was growing up there, but you know. <laughs> well, I mean, my parents um, met and ultimately married uh, in the 40s when they both worked at NBC Radio on Sunset and Vine. I was born at Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital. It doesn't get much more Hollywood than that, I guess. <laughs> Are you familiar with Queen of Angels? That's where I was born. In oh, yeah, Angeles. right. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right there with you. Locals. And, yeah. Um, so, uh, I mentioned before we got in the air, but I want the viewers to know that, you know, I grew up playing saxophone alto and, uh, you know, grew up a fan. Uh, so, so great to have you. It's my pleasure. Thanks. And with that, you know, uh, you talked about being from LA and, and your family and all that. So, uh, your dad was a renowned uh, musician as well, a composer. Um, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about, uh, growing up in that environment and how you gravitated to playing uh, your instruments of choice? Sure, sure. Well, um, <clears throat> first of all, my uh, just a couple of words about my father. He had over se somewhere between 700 and 800 film and television credits uh, upon his passing. And uh, he was just a great, sweet guy, had no flair for self-promotion whatsoever. <laughs> he might have been more famous if he had a little bit more, you know, leaning a little more in that direction but but he did, he listen he raised a family he was a he was a family man and he was a uh, just a, a wonderful role model that once I decided I, I was serious about music you know just having him in the house it was a tremendous plus for me and I'm for which I'll be eternally grateful I will tell you that he he, did, he passed in 2008 
I, I believe, I think so. And uh, shortly thereafter, I was involved in a television show called uh, Movies Rock, which was an hour-long television special um, pairing modern contemporary singers like John Legend and others with classic movie themes, movie vocal uh, you know, theme songs. But one part of this show was John Williams coming in and, re and conducting a medley of famous instrumental um, movie themes from the past, which he had done before. He had this medley all, all previously, uh, you know, worked out. And he came into the room. I'm in the orchestra. I'm at the end of the, happened to be on the end of a woodwind row. And he comes in and he sees me. And he wa Now, I knew him a little bit, but I didn't know how well he knew my dad. Um, I knew he knew him, but, but anyway, he comes down, he leans, he, he gets down on his, you know, bends down over and he says, Tom, I don't know whether your father remembered me or not. Now that's, that's the kind of uh, very modest guy that John Williams is. Can you imagine? The, arguably the best film composer of the latter 20th century. And he's asking him, my father remembered him. I said, John, I, I, I'm sure I know he remembered you. He said, well, I just wanted to tell you, I started out as a, uh, a studio piano player in the 50s that was that was what John Williams did originally and he said um, I, I decided to put my feet foot in the water my toe in the water about uh, becoming a film composer and uh, one of my first apprentice assignments I was I was assigned to your father he tells me I said really he says and and I, I, I must tell you that one of the reasons I decided to continue on this path of, of film composing was because of how kind and encouraging and generous your father was. Now, what kind of a better compliment can one pay about one's father? What if my dad had been a complete jerk? Would we have Jaws and Star Wars and Superman and on and on and on and on? Um, but I, it was that that's the kind of guy my dad was. He was, he was a very, very generous, giving man. So anyway, so that combined with the fact that I've got music uh, around me, you know, uh, my dad was a collector of classical music, jazz. He's the one that he used to read Hi-Fi Stereo Review religiously, you know, every month he'd get it. And he said, I was, I guess I was, well, 1959, I'd have been about 11, maybe 12. And he said, son, I was just starting the saxophone. I started on clarinet. And then started, then morphed into uh, alto sax, well, baritone sax, which was the only opening in the junior high school stage band. So I lugged that sucker around, but uh, eventually more, you know, migrated to the alto. And, uh, and I started listening to more modern jazz other than the Benny Goodman record my father bought me to, as a clarinet insp inspiration. He started getting me Jerry Mulligan records, and then I was introduced to Miles, you know, the Miles, famous Miles sextets. Uh, albums, uh, milestones that kind of blew with Coltrane and Cannonball and so on. And he said to me one day, he said, you know, this." I read an article about this saxophone player, John Coltrane. And I said, I, yeah, I know. He just put out an, an album called Giant Steps. And uh, and uh, he, uh, he he thought that I, I might, you know, I'll, I'm going to get this for you. So you should listen to it. And of course, as so many saxophone players, it changed my life. <laughs> I became... I became obsessed with with the the giant steps magic that he that he made both in the song its chord structure and what he played you know so that was a pretty pivotal moment but I just I, listen he was my dad was uh, my parents the atmosphere there was all about music and I, he didn't I didn't study with him formally but if I had a question about anything he would uh, you know he'd be happy to answer it. And the fact that he was always there, I think, was a great plus for me.
Wow, that's an amazing tribute to your, your father, for sure. Very impressive. Um, and um, was there a point, uh, Tom, where he kind of uh, really acknowledged, you know, that you had achieved a certain, you know, level of expertise in music? <clears throat> well, not, not that I recall in so many words, but after all, I mean, I was so fortunate. I had a recording contract at 20 years old with Impulse Records. I mean, I sort of got there quick. Um, and, and also, I, I did a couple of movie scores, uh, a movie called um, Hanky Panky with, uh, well, Neighbors and Hanky Panky with a full, you know, big 50, 60 piece orchestra. And I had my, I was in the booth. I had written all the music of my dad I had done some of the orchestration for me and conducted for me. So I know that, you know, it, we, we were a pretty good one-two punch. <laughs> and I know, I know he I know he appreciated what I'd achieved. Wow. So um, who are some of your other big influences, though, on the instrument? Wow, on the saxophone specifically, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, good Lord. Stan Getz, awesome. Um, Stan, you know, I, I really ran the gamut from, you know, the kind of mellower sound, mellower, more melodic guys, and the real hard-edged, you know, New York boppers. I mean, <laughs> I... I loved uh, Stanley Turrentine and uh, uh, Stanley, Stanley, and, uh, well, guys like Sonny Rollins, of course, and uh, Eddie Harris, loved him, got to know him. Um, Roland Kirk, amazing saxophone player. You know, he, he, was, he had this, you know, trick with playing two and three horns at a time, which was sort of the gimmick part of him, but in truth, just give him a single, like a tenor sax, he was, he was fantastic. And uh, gosh, you know, I just I just was listening to trying to listen to as much as I could in modern jazz, all the greats. Did you uh, end up getting to meet most of them eventually? I met a lot of them. Yeah, I, of course. I've I've actually been on the stage with Wayne Shorter. Um, I've uh, I, I I met Stanley Tarantino one night. He paid me a big compliment about a tune I had written uh, and how much he enjoyed it. Um, I met Getz. Uh, he he died. He died pretty shortly after. I, he was having, I think, heart trouble when I met him. Uh, but uh, and <laughs> well, I will tell you one funny story about Stan Getz. This is back going back to 1972. Um, Michelle Grand. Well, that year they had Newport in New York, the Newport Jazz Festival. Instead of doing it at the Newport Festival grounds, they had a bunch of. Uh, series of concerts in and around New York. And among the the uh, the heads of one of the concerts was Michelle Legrand. I had worked on some uh, movie scores with him as a player. And uh, and he invited, and I, I was just forming what became the LA Express, but it wasn't yet. I think it was just the Tom Scott Quartet with Joe Sample and uh, Max Bennett, John Guerin, and me, I think. And so he invited me to come out and open, have my band open for him. And then um, Stan Getz was the uh, was going to perform that piece that he had written that Michelle had written for Stan. I can't remember the name of it now, uh, but that was going to be one you know one of these concert segments for for uh, Newport in New York. So I get to New York and I'm in the uh, f that famous uh, saxophone player uh, saxophone store on 48th Street, uh, Charlie Ponty. If you know New York at all, that was the that was the hot place to go for saxophone instruments repairs anything like that. I think I was getting some reads, and I, uh, 
and I, I I'm standing at the counter there. I can see the the door at the front door to the place right there, and I see this red sports car pull up and double park, and Stan gets runs out, and uh, he he says, "Hey, uh, Charlie," he just interrupts me, you know, Charlie, I need some of this, I mean, whatever it was, and I say, "Hi, I'm uh, I'm Tom Scott. I'm, I'm playing with you tomorrow night at Carnegie Hall," and he says, "Oh, great. Can you listen? Can you go watch my car?" <laughs> No, I can't. No, you're on your own with your car. <laughs> he was, he was, he could. He was known as not being the nicest guy on the planet, but boy, what a unique sound! Well, you know it's him in two notes. You know he's just got that breathy, beautiful tone. I mean, that's the great thing about saxophone. There's such a wide variety of styles possible um, between, say, the hard gob, the Stanley Turrentines, and the guys on the edgy side and all the way to the Stan Getz and Paul Desmond. Paul Desmond was another one I loved. Um, so, and everything in between, you know, George Coleman, I, I adored him when he was during his years with uh, Miles Davis. I, 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 I could hum you the whole solo from Stella by Starlight uh, easily uh, <laughs> from, from that record, My Funny Valentine with uh, Miles and George Coleman and, you know, Herbie, Ron Carter and Tony Williams. Wow. Well, one of the reasons I gravitated toward the sax was, you know, I music is my first passion for sure, and I cannot sing a note. Um, so I was curious if you can, you know, hold the tune vocally, and when you play, uh, do you sort of play as if you're singing through your instrument? Well, that's a great that's a great question, actually. I, I, one day, uh, I think we were in Los Angeles at the time. I was on some movie call. Uh, you know, in the orchestra, and Michelle Legrand was the leader. And there was a moment, a break or something, and I saw him at the piano, and I thought, "Here's my chance." And I go over and say to Michelle Legrand, "So how how do you approach writing? The, you know, I mean, if you don't know guys, if you don't know Michelle Legrand's work, he is one of the great uh, com- song songwriters. Uh, just beautiful, beautiful stuff. I mean, I, I couldn't I couldn't begin to name them all, but he's a he's an Oscar winning." Grammy-winning uh, uh, composer, arranger, pianist, famous, in, and, and like an icon in France. So uh, he says to me, I, I, I try to write vocally, vocally. I try to write melodies that I think are singable, you know, because that gives it that lyric quality. So uh, right away I thought, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Write melodies that have a vocal, that have, you, they could be sung, not the necessarily they're going to be, but they're, they had that that you've got to have that melodic sense to to make the best kind of melodies that way and i've kind of used that of course some of the tunes that i write are more rhythm oriented obviously the funk ones you know you're not you're not trying to play a, but so so context matters but i thought that was a great answer and i, I if i'm going ever going to write a ballad or anything you know melodic that 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 day with michelle legrand keeps popping back into my head yeah, and you never know. Some lyricists might want to add vocals to it, and you'll, you know, get another more exposure with the song. You know? Well, that is ha- that has happened, in fact. Um, so, when you were kind of, you know, early on in your career, Tom, what were your ultimate aspirations? Because you became, you know, such a Renaissance person in the industry, um, you know, with your fingers in so many different pies. Yeah. Well, um, everything kind of happened at once. Uh, so. <laughs> I've I've said for years I said listen I know I I, I, I want to be in the music business music field but I'm just I just can't decide what it is I want to do when I grow up um, and so 
I, I was very fortunate that opportunities came along for me both in the in the playing, arranging, actually composing for uh, for films and television, uh, and I, I took as many as I could. <laughs> I, I I don't know was I arrogant enough I don't know to think I could because in the beginning of course it was like earn while you learn I I but I did have the benefit of as I say just the just the subconscious uh, memory of my father you know pouring over a piece of score paper trying to come up with the right stuff and uh, so I understood kind of understood the process and I thought you know you got to just you got to just sit down there and and do it. And so that's how I got into the film. I started out with, uh, there was a show called The Bold Ones at Universal. I did a couple episodes of that. Then a few episodes of, of uh, a show, a cop show starring a then unknown actor named Burt Reynolds. Uh, it was called Dan August. I wrote some background scores for that. And, and that was the Quinn Martin show. Quinn Martin kind of dominated, there was a production company that dominated primetime television, you know, Dan August, a Quinn Martin production, yeah. right? You remember? I mean, those of us who were old enough remember that that the announcer. FBI, yeah, uh, yeah, the, that was another one, right? So I, I was kind of, I got into the um, Quinn Martin, uh, I don't know, composers uh, group. Uh, there were a few of us: John Parker and uh, Dwayne Tatro, and uh, anyway, Dave Grusin, and a few other guys. So I wrote episodes of Barnaby Jones, Streets of San Francisco, which I that was Pat Williams' theme, which I also played the theme on that. So there was all that going on, and in the meantime, I was getting called to do record dates, and uh, uh, you know, I, I, I just, it was, it was, I was, I was loving what I was doing, and I was making money doing it. So why stop now? Were there one or two experiences in the studio or performing relatively early on that you sort of learned a hard lesson from as you moved forward and progressed your career? <sighs> Well, I do remember one, and I think it was with Ray Brown, Ray Brown and Howard Roberts, a great guitar player, John Guerin on drums, and I went out on the stage, and I was so, I don't know, I was very young, maybe 19 or 20, and I was something about, I don't think I'd had anything to drink, although maybe I did. Anyway, so I go out there and confidently play, and I heard some of it back later, and I was sharp. I was like way, way sharp, and I didn't hear it. <laughs> I thought, "Uh-oh, <laughs> that 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 was that was an experience." You don't you want to you want to remember those so you never do it again. <laughs> and then, as far I've had so many great experiences as far as memorable uh, times. Oh my God, uh, working with Joni Mitchell the first time I worked on an album uh, called "For the Roses." This is before. Court and Spark, the album that we made as the LA Express with her, which took took off like a shot on the charts and kept us on the road for eight months with her. But before that, I came in, it was just me and her. Up until that time, up until um, this album I was working on, For the Roses, she had never worked with a full band at once. Her MO was to go in, the studio, go in a little studio and by herself and record a tune, either playing the company herself on the piano, the guitar, or auto harp sometimes, and her, her time was real good, which was fortunate because then she would bring in a drummer and have the drummer overdub, and then bring in a bass player and have the bass player overdub. So one at a time, she'd add these parts, and uh, and I came in, uh, and it was just I, to be honest with you, I didn't really realize 
how just how good she was as a songwriter and singer. I thought she was, oh yeah, she's a folk singer, whatever, you know. And then she played me this song from the point of view of a, a, a deaf Ludwig von Beethoven, Ludwig's song. And, you know, I'm thinking, wow, this is way more sophisticated than a folk singer protest singing protest songs, you know. So we got into what, what she has described as a ping pong game where, uh, you know, and she's a painter and an excellent one. So she would describe what she wanted to me in terms of like, I want it yellow here. Now, what the hell does that mean? Uh, it was my job to, I don't know, well, let's try this. Because I don't think that way, you know. I And, and this is one of the, another reason for my success. You know, a lot of times, uh, especially in the recording field, I end up working with people who are, who are totally self-taught and have no formal training in music. They, Joni, Joni would sit at the piano and play these like sophisticated chords, like Miles did, like so what chords, you know, jazz chords. And I said, oh, that's a really a cool, uh, you know, that, that D minor thing you're doing there. She said, what? I don't, I don't know what it is. I just like the sound of it. And that's the way she wrote. And she just, she, her fingers just would find something that sounded good to her, and she would write a song around that which was pretty stunning. Anyway, working with her was just fantastic because she had some background vocals where where they all, and she she did this before I came in, she did like a forced four background vocals, and every one of them had, they'd, they'd end on a note, and then she'd hold it, and then they'd all vibrato exactly evenly, like, da, all exactly the same up and down in the vibrato. So I ended up, going with like four woodwinds, flutes and clarinets and things, and duplicating to the vibrato. You know, taking the time to just get it exactly right on my four parts. And that, that, that was like such a wonderful sound, that combination. So we kind of were discovering things, uh, you know, as we, as we went along. I think, I think I did maybe two weeks of a stuff of, of various tunes in, in, in at, at night we had night sessions she was a night owl and so we started didn't start till like i think 7 p.m and go to maybe i don't know to one two in the morning about what year was that tom uh this was uh this would have been 73 i think 73 yeah wow. no no was 72 it's it probably 72 i guess it came out in 73 but anyway right in there wow um well you know um, I came to you first uh, when you were in the LA Express scene. Right. You were doing the you know jazz fusion and a lot of uh, funky stuff. But I think the first record I ever bought actually of yours was um, Blow It Out. Is that the... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was my you know entree into uh, Tom Scott and then finding everything else out after that. Uh, right. Going back and, of course, getting the LA Express stuff. And um, What can you tell us about that? period you know the the jazzier funkier rhythmic stuff that you're doing who were you inspired by i'm thinking the crusaders and uh things like that well it i guess it began uh yes i like the crusaders very much by the way and, and speaking of saxophone players wilton felder you know classic what they used to call texas tenor great 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 player wonderful guy sweet guy anyway so uh, what happened for me, as far as my starting to get into that bag in a more serious way, was our bass player in the what was then the Tom Scott Quartet, yet to become the LA Express. He brought in a tune to our normally kind of bebop-oriented set that we were doing. Brought in this kind of funky tune, 
and 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 it, uh, there were a couple of great things about it. First of all, it was different, and it was also it had lines in the bass uh, and the and the, ry- the rhythm that was like they they were kind of felt kind of liberated from the normal you know the bebop like four on the floor doom doom doom. And now they're going do boop get which at the time in other words it's it's obviously now it's it's taken for granted. But at the time it was a big departure for bass players to to make that transition from upright bass to to the Fender kind of uh, vibe, and and Max Bennett did it beautifully. He he was one of the most in, at that point in, one of the most in demand studio bassists uh, on either upright or Fender, and and not a not a lot of upright guys made that transition to Fender uh, so easily, and and it meant a tremendous loss of work for those who couldn't. It was just you know everybody got into the Fender bass. Everybody wants that now, which happens. But anyway, um, he brought in this tune. Uh, it was called Nunya as in Nunya Business. <laughs> and, uh, and it was sort of, it went, like that. Some kind of simple lick and a little bridge. Well, we enjoyed playing it, and it was, I didn't feel we were, you know, yeah, there you go. There I'm you there. go. Is, that all, is Nunya on there? I yeah, can't it is. remember. It is. Oh, it is, okay. Yeah. So, uh, so we did that tune, and not only did we enjoy playing it, it was just fun. And, and we weren't, it didn't feel like we were selling out or being commercial. It was nothing like that. We loved playing it. I'm still playing the jazz kind of bebop licks I was playing in the other context. But it, but it was fun. And the other thing was the audience went nuts. They loved it. So I was thinking, okay, you like this. Well, I like it too. So we began to add more tunes. We added Larry Carlton uh, along with Joe Sample and Max and John uh, to the band. It's funny, I'll tell you right briefly how naive I was at the time. I think it was John Guerin, our drummer, who suggested that we add Larry Carlton. And I, by being the jazz purist that I was at the time, I said, well, wait a minute, but they're two chordal instruments. They're going to clash if they try to, you know, play free jazz. And John says, Tom, just try it out, okay? Don't don't make any rash judgments this before you've heard it. And of course, of course, a guitar player and a keyboard player who listen to each other <laughs> will know when it's time to, for, for example, for the guitar player to go in a signal note lick or just a little, you know, a little figure or something, let the piano go, and vice versa. They, you know, if they're, if they're the right... To, and, of course, you can't get any more talented people than Larry Carlton and Joe Sample to, to do that. So the thing started growing and growing, and with a few... I'm telling you, it was like six months or something. I remember that <laughs> driving up to this uh, to the Baked Potato Jazz Club is where we were playing, which is on Lancashire Boulevard, uh, for those of you who know, or Coenga, sorry, Coenga Boulevard. Lancashire is the one that leads up to it, and you could see it on the opposite corner. And I looked over there, and there's a line down the street to get in to see us. It was all word of mouth. I certainly didn't promote anything, but it just, the word got out that this is a hot band and, and go see it. So... I'm thinking, you know, maybe we have a tiger by the tail here, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and uh, um, an A and M and M engineer, recording engineer named Hank Sacallo, um, who was at the time pretty much exclusive, the exclusive uh, 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 employee of um, Lou Adler and Ode Records. He had he had Hank had recorded, you know, Carol King's Tapestry, and uh, and Cheech and Chong and all the artists that, that Lou had at that time on old records. And he loved the band. And he said, listen, let's go, let's make it. Now, I had already signed an artist deal at Ode, but I hadn't started a record yet, so there was that. And then this band thing happened. 
So Hank says, come on, we'll, we'll use uh, downtime on the weekends at A&M and so I'd start to record some of this stuff, which we did. And that became the album you just held up. And uh, Lou Adler, you know, uh, was did a very nice campaign with that belt buckle, uh, the girl with a belt buckle, who I don't think I ever met her. Well, I was going to ask you. If you yeah, did. I know you were. Did, I know did, you were. <laughs> what was it inspired by, like, Sticky Fingers cover? No. I, well, I, I didn't have anything with it. Here, just tip just it up curious. a little bit because the glare. Just tip it like... Yeah, and, and that then, was all. That was all Lou, and he had belt buckles made up, and that patch, I which I have one of. I uh, the belt buckle is long gone. I uh, maybe I gave it to my first uh, wife at the during the divorce. I don't know what happened to it. Uh, but anyway, that 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 sort of got me start launched me into the into the jazz. You, funk, you guys jazz were on fire. Department. You guys were on fire on that recording. It was it was it was a lot of fun to do, and uh, again, the music was new to us, so it was really just a delightful creative period and then of course you say uh, blow it out uh which was actually okay so let me back up a little bit we did that album we did another album called tomcat immediately after our tour with with with, uh, joni we had been playing some of the new material in our concert with her we did a we opened for her and then accompanied her on her in her uh, music so we we went right in the studio after in like i don't know september october after the june after the court and spark tour had ended and recorded Tomcat, and then and the guys came to me before it came out, and they said, uh, John Guerin and Max especially, they said, listen, we want it to be the LA Express. We want to be equal, considered equal. We don't want it to be Tom Scott and the LA Express anymore. And look, you know, honestly, I just wanted to play in a good band. Fine, if you want to do that, fine. So I go to Lou Adler. <laughs> this is where I, this is what I didn't didn't count on. I go to Lou Adler and I say, listen. Uh, um, Lou, uh, we've had a band meeting, and the guys want to make it just the L.A. Express instead of Tom Scott and the L.A. Express. He thought a minute and says, Tom, I don't think so. Oh, really? Why not? He says, well, first of all, I I don't think that you should submerge yourself in a band. I think you have other things in your life ahead of you, uh, which which, doing that would restrict you in a way that I don't think is right. the other thing was, see, I was just signed to him alone as a solo artist. The band came along later, so they weren't under contract, and he didn't really want them under contract. <laughs> so I had to go back and break the news to, to particularly Max Bennett and John Gear. Look, guys, uh, I know I agreed to this, but I don't have the authority. I'm signed to a label, and uh, I have to do what Lou Adler says. They went on and, and signed with a guy named James William Gursio, who had produced... Blood, Sweat, and Tears of Chicago. He he had he had gotten a label deal with Columbia to to, to buy this ranch in in Colorado, the Caribou Ranch, and formed mm. his own record company, Caribou Records. They did a couple records without me as the LA Express, and then that was the end of that was about the end of it for them. But um, in the meantime, Lou says to me, "Okay, well they're gone. What do you want to do?" And I had had a session in LA with Steve Gadd and Ralph McDonald. And a, and a Gary King, who was the bass player for for Bob James at the time, and I just I just loved it. So I said, "Yeah, I want to I want to do a record with those New York guys." So uh, Lou flew me to New York, and I walk in uh, in Hit Factory was the was the studio we did it in, and there is Bob James on piano, Richard T on keyboards, Eric Gale and Hugh McCracken on guitars, Ralph McDonald on percussion. Gary King on bass and Steve Gadd on drums, 
And that with that week, making those laying those tracks for New York Connection, which was the name of the album, was one of the most fantastic experience I'd ever had. And boy, did I get a lesson in rhythms in the art of the rhythm section, because I, it's a very underappreciated art. These people who take a song and come up with parts between the keyboards and the drums and the percussion and the guitars, they they're like this. They're just like a puzzle piece that everything fits together. Each part is independent, and you take one out, and it's just not the same, not the same. And did, uh, did you know any of them beforehand? I knew Ralph, and I knew Steve. I had met Gary King. He was not. He was kind of a. I don't know. I hate to say this, but sort of a religious, very serious, you know, religious stoic kind of guy. So he, he didn't. He didn't exude a lot of warmth. <laughs> so we didn't get tight. But uh, I, I, and again, I had, I think I'd met, well, I knew Bob James. I did know him from before. And boy, did they deliver for me. Uh, and I brought a lot of lead sheets that were sketchy. You know, I had, I had, I mean, the basic form of the tunes were written out, but sometimes there was no melody. Um, and, and, and there was a structure and maybe a couple of um, transition figures here and there. And a couple of tunes, I, I, you know, I wait till I heard what they played, and that inspired the melody that went over on top, that went on top of it. Mm. And uh, and it was just it was fantastic. So that that album really and that 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 got me this cover on Cashbox right here. That that's me. Cashbox used to be for those of you who are too young to remember. Cashbox used to be one of the record industry journals along yeah, with. Yeah, they uh, still had Record World. The Record World and uh, and what's the variety? Not variety, but uh, well, Billboard of course. Billboard, Billboard, Record World, and Cashbox were the three record industry uh mags and i made the cover that year with the uh, new york connection anyway so well songs uh, songs like dirty old man i mean on that yeah just, un know. unbelievable that the, yeah. the funk the the that drum pattern and the oh man it, it's classic it's the classic anyway so that that album was i don't know whether how much money it made um, probably not a lot but if any but uh See, I, I didn't get any royalties because, of course, the deal you signed for the record company in those days was, we'll give you the money for an album. You make the record, and if you can, if you can have any at the end, you know that's that's your fee. And but but you've got to, you know, let's say you've got a ten percent royalty. That means you've got to pay that. Let's say you make it for a hundred grand. You've got to pay back us us back the record company out of your ten percent royalty. So if 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 you and I never did this, but let's say if you sold a million records, right? Um, at, at ten cents a, uh, a copy, uh, you would have you would have generated. Uh, is it a hundred thousand? Anyway, you, you you wouldn't make any. You'd you'd have broken even, and the record company would have made like nine hundred grand. <laughs> it was, but but of course, and that sounds like absurd as a business deal, a business arrangement. But you got to understand that most of the records that record companies put out did not make their money back. So you had to rely on the big hits. I was not a money, a huge money maker. I'll guarantee you. But of course, in his case, Carol King and Cheech and Chong were. <laughs> so, so that was in a sense I was underwritten by uh, by those records. So uh, he said, "Yeah, man, go back, go back to New York, make another one. This is great." And that's what led to the album "Blow It Out," which was the second of my New York connection experiences. And, and that one had uh, Starsky and Hutch theme on right. it, also. Yeah. Right. Um, I love on that one, smooth, uh, smoothing on down. Yep. Um, you've got the feeling. Yeah. I want to be down to your soul. Right. 
down to your down soul, to your, especially as a down to your soul. Down to your soul, by the way. I mean, I, you want to talk about flattery that just sends me, sends me over the moon. I happen to be on a television show. I think it was Dick Clark. They called it Dick Clark's 33 and a third uh, uh, American Bandstand special. So it had been 33 and a third years since American Bandstand had premiered. This was the 80s. And so he put together a, a, a most unlikely band <laughs> of all-stars, which included me. Lee Rittenauer, Stanley Clark, uh, that Cajun fiddle player, and Frankie Avalon on trumpet. Junior Walker was there. Uh, the Beach Boys bass player. Uh, just an amazing assemblage of of uh, musicians to play along with with the original. The original they'd they'd edited the original video of uh, Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock, and we we're supposed to play, and we each had a little solo area. Anyway, so I'm I'm uh, at this event and and dick clark had invited a whole bunch of other music personalities among them ella fitzgerald and i was i was just going around and saying hello to people and how great it was to see you and meet you and stuff i get to ella fitzgerald she says tom scott i love down to your soul wait a minute ella fitzgerald loves my my singing i'm not much of a singer but i, I she but the feel was pretty cool and so, you know, I'm a total realist about it. She's not telling me I'm a great singer, but she she dug the track. And I I just thought I was, I was so flattered by that, man. Ella wow, Fitzgerald, are you fantastic. king? Yeah. The, the best The best female vocalist ever. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, that's serious praise. I um, know. What was, uh, like, the largest size venue that you guys played you know when you're doing the l express or that style of music right well the largest one i ever played was wembley stadium because that's what that was the final concert of our tour with Joni mitchell for for to promote court and spark which started in january of um of uh oh my god 1974 and it was originally a six-week tour of college venues small you know am, uh, oh, small concert venues within colleges you know 250 to 350 seats i mean i love playing those i mean it's great it's real intimate and it's cool but the album uh went on the charts and and wouldn't leave <laughs> so the tour kept getting extended 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 and uh, by the summer the tour was extended and extended and so by the summertime we were playing major you know, Boston Garden and the Forum here, and I mean, the big, 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 like basketball arenas kind of thing. And at the, and then in uh, October, I think it was, we were invited to be part of an all-day concert which featured Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, the band. I think Bob Dylan might have been with the band then. Um, anyway, and and Joni Mitchell and Tom Scott, the LA Express. Like now, I'm on this gigantic concert bill. I've got billing, <laughs> so that was that was that was like a hundred hundred thousand people. Wow. <laughs> uh, so you know when you talk about the funk style, though, uh, one of my favorite players and one of my uh, inspirations besides yourself, and uh, I'll mention a couple though from that period: sure. uh, Maceo Parker with the James mm. Brown groove, and then uh, Grover Washington uh, Jr. Also, Grover and I were dear friends. Okay. We used the same band basically for at least the two New York records. 
I made that was that was the core of his rhythm section as well, and rightfully so. That that rhythm section there, there was never before, and it never will be after a rhythm section that, as I say, had this ability to meld. It, it, even when they were playing softly, it was intense as hell. Not to mention when they were like balls out. <laughs> it was just uh, incredibly exciting to be to be with them. Just and the, an intense level of musicality that it just just was. I mean, Richard T., uh, you're familiar with his work, obviously. He had that famous duet with Steve Gadd playing uh, Take the A-Train on, on a video. It's just They used to do that uh, on a couple of my shows as well, and it's just unbelievable. And then, of course, Eric Gale, who, to me, was the, is the best. Uh, he's a great soloist, uh, absolutely, but as an accompanist, accompanist he is a master uh, as I say, and a great, greatly underappreciated art to to accompany a tune so deftly and distinctly and perfectly like they did. So Grover was uh, Grover was into that too. He accepted that. He actually stayed at my house at one point for a while in the San Fernando Valley. He came out. Uh, I needed a help. Uh, he needed my help on a film score he was doing. Uh, it was a it was a, a TNT uh, move, uh, television movie called Percy and Thunder with an all black cast. Um, I can't quite remember all the cast members, but anyway, it was about a fighter and a boxer. And uh, uh, he had done the score, and I got a call from my agent saying, "Listen, uh, they there there's something there's something not right about the score. The producers aren't happy with it." And I told him, "You might be able to help because uh, you guys are buddies." I said, "Yes, absolutely." And so I got the got the movie, got the score he'd written, and <laughs> the the music he'd written was good. There was only one thing wrong it, that Grover didn't know when to not play. <laughs> he would he would start to play and he couldn't stop. So uh, he would play through dialogue. You know, when people are talking, he's like wailing, and and uh, that wasn't working for them. So a lot of what I did was basically editing, you know, stripping away from some. And, and I remember I, I rewrote a cue for him one, and it had him playing for like five bars. Okay, Grover, go. Boom. Play, 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 play. Five bars, six bars, seven bars. Grover, Grover, stop. We got to do it again. Just play the five bars. Oh, okay. I mean, he gets wound up, and it's very hard for him to stop. <laughs> He was a dear friend, and I adored him, and I loved his sound and his approach. He was he was right on, man. He was right on. And it was what? oh Maceo, Maceo. I, I don't think I ever met him, but oh my God, he had it going on too. He was great. His feel in the pocket, just awesome, awesome. An object lesson in feel on the saxophone, Maceo Parker, and allowing things to breathe and space and all of that right less is more sometimes what made you uh favor the tenor i don't th i don't think i favor the tenor i think no? oh i i got asked to play tenor more than uh, more than alto so i guess in that sense i was regarded more as a tenor player that's just what people wanted you know um i got in the beginning i got a lot of calls saying can you play like king curtis and i said sure and then I ran out and got a King Curtis record to find out what the what the hell I was supposed to do. <laughs> but make it, I, you know, make I, it yeah. <laughs> but I love playing the alto still, and and soprano. I love playing. You know, I did a I did a tribute concert in here in Southern California with uh, uh, the um, 
Newport uh, Newport Beach Jazz Party, which which until COVID was uh, every year, and I did a tribute to Oliver Nelson. Oliver being the guy that actually uh, ended up getting me my record deal with Bob Thiel at Impulse because I it's that I was I first got exposure to Impulse Records and Bob on a live record that I did with in Oliver Nelson's big band at. Uh, at a club called Marty's on the Hill in Los Angeles. There's, it's, a, it's an album called uh, Oliver Nelson Live in Los Angeles. And after the week, uh, we, we'll record it the last two nights, uh, Bob Thiel did. And then he came, uh, and I'm going back now, I'm sorry, I'm out of, out of order here. But in 1960, uh, seven, eight, eight, seven or eight, yeah, I was 19, so it must have been 40, uh, 67. He, he, I'm putting my horn away, and he walks up and says, Hey kid, you want to make a record for Impulse? And I'm like, you talking to me? Why, yes, Mr. Thiel, I'd love to. <laughs> now you gotta understand, Impulse at the time was such a like a hip record company because it had Coltrane and Eric Dolphy and Mingus and and Oliver Nelson and just you know the best some of the best jazz musicians on the planet. So you're gonna put me in that group? Holy cow! What a what a what a privilege. And so, um, so Oliver was was another guy that I just adored, and a great, great, he had great soprano. That's what I was getting to. I was talking about the instruments. You said tenor. I love playing the alto, but I, and but to me, uh, Oliver played soprano in the band that, we, that week, that couple of weeks, and he became a very close friend. I adored him, and he dry, he died so young and so unnecessarily. It was very sad. Anyway, um, he played great soprano. So I. I, I kind of love to play soprano, and I love to sound like Oliver if I can. <laughs> He's my model. That reminds me, um, you know, you mentioned the clarinet early on. Yeah. That was actually the first instrument I wanted to do, but they had too many of them. So right. they pushed me, you know, they said, well, you, we you need can either tr trombone, trombone or sax. Right. Yeah. Right. So, well, yeah. They, 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 they did you a disservice in one sense, because clarinet is a lot harder to, uh, as your second instrument, if you do it, if you start with it, if you can get down the thing of you've got to cover tone holes and you've got to, it, it won't sound right unless you do the correct blowing, you know, the right embouchure and the diaphragm and all that stuff. Uh, if you get it on clarinet, saxophone will be much easier, but it's harder to go the other way, I think. Yeah, and there's not a lot of, you know, contemporary music that favors clarinet. There is there's not. That's true. Um, Don't tell Eddie Daniels that, of course. <laughs> Um, so was it Lou Adler, Tom, that, um, connected you to, uh, Carol King? For yes. Yes, absolutely. This was 72 or three, one of those two. I got a call from, uh, from Lou, Lou's office. Um, I, I don't think I was yet an artist on the label. I think actually what I did for Lou that day with Carol, I think is that's one of the reasons I became an artist on the label because he said, we, we got a track with Carol King. Now I, I, I hadn't met her. But I, at, at that point, Tapestry was one of the best-selling albums uh, of the year, of all time, as it turns out. Um, she, of course, had been a demo singer, a songwriter and demo singer for others. And Lou's the one, very, very smart guy, who said, you know, Carol, you should, you should do your own vocal album. And she was reticent. She was reluctant to, to do it for a while. But he kept at her, and finally, you know, they, she, she, uh, she relented. And they turned out an album called Tapestry, which was a huge, huge hit. Anyway, this was, I think, the album following uh, Tapestry. And uh, we needed sax. We needed a tenor saxophone. Okay. 
I showed up. I meet Carol. Very, very sweet. In fact, I, I, I've seen her in the last year. She is one of the most delightful, lovely human beings on the planet Earth. She just lights up a room. You know, she's she's up pretty up there in age. I'm 74, so she's got to be close to 80 by now. Maybe, you know, whatever she is, it doesn't matter. She's just so young at heart and such a great spirit. Lovely. So I go in there. They, they play me the tune. I say, jazz, man. Wow, that's kind of cool. She said, well, the lyric is kind of about Coltrane. I said, great. Fantastic. But the out, but the tune was not in a Coltrane mode at all. <laughs> the, the tune was a rock tune. So uh, I didn't worry about too much about trying to trying to like sound like Coltrane uh, because the lyric is about him. That that was that didn't matter, and they didn't care either. They wanted me to be me, and I came in and just started playing, and it was fun. I got a few did a, did did a few tracks. There's one part of that record where they I think they used two or three of my performances all at once. <laughs> but but they, but they basically there was a master solo track which they used. And uh, it, it, you know, I was in and out of there pretty fast because it really, it was, it was not complicated. I mean, chord-wise, it was pretty simple to uh, to understand, to grasp. So I played a few takes, and uh, thank you very much. See ya. That was it. Wow. Um, and was that uh, chronologically before, or after? Listen to what the man said. Oh, that was way before. Yeah, listen to the man said was after we got back from the tour, and I, right after Joni, I went on tour with George Harrison. Um, and wrote a couple of arrangements for Barbara Streisand. It was a big year for me. <laughs> and uh, so uh, there's Barbara there that, on that session right there. You oh, probably yeah. can't see that too well. Anyway, is that uh, Carol King on the top? It's her, it sure is. Yeah. Yeah, that's Carol up there, and there's Joni mm. right there. Yeah, wow. There's a triad of amazing. I know, right I know. There. I mean, how 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 lucky can a guy get to have, to be associated with three such marvelous singer performers? Just great. It was great. Anyway, um, where were we? Oh yeah, uh, uh, listen to what the man said. You want to talk about that, right? Yeah. Well, I was curious. I brought that up specifically, Tom, because I was curious which uh, song it was that broke through huge on pop radio that maybe you heard for the first time yourself. On a on a national giant oh, hit. Oh 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 gosh! It could have been Jazz Man. Actually, uh, that's not true because as a soloist, I think it was Jazz Man. But prior to that, in the very beginning, I got a, I, I got on an answering a musician's answering service, and word started to get around about there's this kid, whatever you know, who plays saxophone and and woodwinds. I got a call to uh, a guy named um, Mason Williams, who who was a writer actually on this original Smothers Brothers show, but he was also a guitar player and songwriter, and he wrote a thing called Classical Gas, oh, which yeah. was an instrumental hit, 1967 maybe eight I, I, somewhere in there. One of the first sessions that I did, and I play. Uh, there was another saxophone player named Jim Horn, uh, a, a more of a rocker guy, big tall guy, and uh, and we did a lot of sessions together. But but this was a a, a duet for two recorders, total soprano recorders. So we played our little duet, and that's probably the first thing I heard on the radio because that thing, that was and, and very unusually, by the way, an instrument, a purely instrumental song that made the top ten. Hmm. Wow, you know, I, I was aware of that you. that you were on that particular song, but I certainly know it. Yeah. Anyway, so, but back to listen to what the man said. I, I had been home from touring, not too long, in in '75, I think, 
and the phone rings, and it's an engineer from uh, Wally Hyder. Wally Hyder had a recording studio. He was a very well-known recording engineer, one of the early guys, old guys. I think he'd already passed by then, but anyway, the the, the name of the studio remained as Wally Hyder Recording on uh, right off of Sunset, and uh, anyway, in Hollywood. So these, this guy says to me, listen, Paul McCartney's here, and he's, he's, we heard you were in town and uh, or available maybe, and, and we need a soprano saxophone player. I said, great, well, great. Well, what day do you want me to come in? He says, well, what are you doing now? <laughs> I said, well, I guess I'm on my way to Wally Hyder's studio. So I went down there, and I walk in, and it's one of those places where the booth is the first thing you walk, the, the door to the outside is the booth. You walk in, and there's the booth. And there's Paul and uh, the engineer, and a couple of worshipers, among them Davy Jones of the Monkees, and uh, and uh, tie a yellow ribbon on the old uh, Tony Orlando. Orlando. He was there, and some other pers- you know, some other celeb. Well, it was like the the you know the Paul worshippers, <laughs> and uh, and Paul was very cordial. He's a, he's really he's really uh, you know has good social skills and was very very nice. And so um, I I'd say okay well. Um, I tell you what, why don't I go in the in the recording uh, studio part, and uh, I'm going to put my headphones on, play me the tune, and I'll kind of warm up and try a few things. I walk into the studio, and there's Linda McCartney at this little upright piano, and she's just as warm and sweet as she could be. You know, I didn't know what to. I'd heard about you know that they were a couple, and she was like Kodak heiress or some something like that. But she could not have been sweeter, and she said, you know. Paul wants me to be in the band. I really, I'm really not that good, but I'm trying to get better. In fact, and then she played me a section of one of his tunes where she said, "I've been practicing this part. I'm, I'm, I've got this one down pretty good." And although she was just sharing this kind of very personal stuff, just took me right in as a friend, and I, I appreciated that a lot. You know, it's very sweet. Anyway, she leaves, and then uh, I put the headphones in. I close my eyes, and the tune starts to play. Listen to what the man said, and I figure out, okay, it's in G. It's kind of a lot of G, really. It's not. It doesn't modulate much. So I just started playing along and holes, a few holes that I find. And then it gets to this section where, after about a bar, I realize, oh my God, this must be the solo section. So I come in and I'm just playing along and you know grooving, my eyes closed again. And then it goes. Then it goes to the slow section, and I played some stuff in there, and then back to the da 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 da. You know, the, that basic hook of the tune. So I just played along with that, and it goes to a fade, and I close my. I open my eyes, and everybody in the booth is applauding. And I go, well, wait a minute. I I I have no idea what I played. I was totally unconscious. I was just getting the sense of the tune. Can I do another one? He said, sure. And of course, the, the 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 practice track, the unconscious track, is the one that's all you hear on the record. <laughs> yeah, free of inhibitions. That's right, and not too much thinking. Don't think too much. Just just react, and that's what. Well, happened. sort of along those lines, and working with someone like Paul McCartney, uh, did you ever get butterflies? You know, with any of these people? No, no, no. I was already, you know, I was already a fairly seasoned professional by then, and 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 confident enough to know that look. If I'm going to take a gig, it's my obligation to give the absolute best performance I can possibly give, and 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 it's and the most satisfying thing is I when I can have done having done that can walk in and say I I did the best I could and made that record maybe a little better 
than it was when I walked in. That is what that what turns me on. That's the, the reward of it, uh, because I'm a serious professional. You know, I'm proud of my work, and I want to remain. Pr- I want to stay proud of it. <laughs> so I've got pretty high standards, you know, when it comes to my my, my playing and writing, for that matter. Well, as you should um, speaks for itself. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.